If you decided to listen to this week's message of Dr. Day Central, we know that Jesus has placed something on your heart. So let's dive in. I want to start off this morning by asking a quick question. Have you ever had the get your life in order speech? Like, just sort out your stuff. Like, this year, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to sort out all of my, you know, my drinking habits, my smoking habits, my whatever. You can do your list down there. I'm just sorting out my stuff, and then I'll come to church. I'm, I'm so close. Ever been there before? Ever heard that talk? Ever had that talk with yourself? I'm going to get myself sorted out, and then I'm going to get ready, and this year is the year. Okay. So if you've ever had that talk and you didn't like it too much and it didn't work out too well for you, I have good news because I'm going to talk to you about the one big problem with that specific question in that talk. And the problem is one word, Jesus. Jesus never had that talk with people. He invited them to come as they are. He meets them right where they are and then he walks with them. In fact, his invitation is to come to me and I will give you rest. Or come and drink. I am the spring of life-giving water. Or come and dine. Sit at my table. Feast. I prepare a feast for you. Before your enemies. Come. I have so much for you. It's not get yourself in order and then come. It's just, I see where you are. Come. And that's what this series is all about. And today we're going to talk about this one big thing. Jesus invites us to come to a relationship, and not to a religion. Jesus invites us to come to a relationship, him, a person, and not to a religion. Now, what do I mean by that? I want to explore it by quickly just sharing with you guys what is a religion. So religion is basically a ladder. I don't know if you know ladders. I'm not a big expert, but there's one behind me now. And ladders are made to climb up to something that you Try and reach in your own power, but you can't get there. So now you make use of a ladder. And that's exactly how religion works. Religion gives us little steps, like a ladder, to try and reach God and find blessing, and hopefully he'll love us, by giving us sets of rules that we need to achieve. And if we do this, we're getting to God. All religions work like this. In Islam, it's the five pillars of Islam that I need to climb. In Hinduism, it's karma. Make sure that your good outweighs your bad, my friend. Otherwise, you might get in trouble and come back as a cat. Secondly, Buddhism. Thirdly, we climb that ladder as well. We believe that all things are evil and to get rid of all the evil, we need to meditate. We need to work hard to get and reach nirvana, to not have anything bad within us. It's hard work, sacrifice, and then we reach the enlightened state of nirvana. And in Christianity... We also have a version, a religious version of Christianity. I grew up in that version of Christianity where you read your Bible, you go to church, you pray, you do all the right Christian things, and if you don't do them, you're going to get in trouble. You're never going to get to God. In fact, I remember still, and many of you guys maybe have heard this story, but as a young teenage boy, doing teenage boy stuff, sinning, 12 o'clock at night after ETV, I would be like, Jesus, please don't come tonight. <laughs> because if you come tonight, it's tickets. Okay? That is religion speaking. That is not Jesus. 
He's in a totally different world. Like we, we are playing the wrong game here. We're busy with snakes and ladders and he finished the game. He's meeting us at the finishing point. That's when he said, it is finished. So when you're with him, you start at finish. You, you don't go past the beginning, <laughs> just straight finish. That's the picture. And uh, just a quick little note, if you follow, if you think Jesus is inviting you to some other religion, the reason why this doesn't work, why Jesus came to end religion, is religion only produces two kinds of people. The first one is broken people. The people that can't keep to all the rules. They feel they fail the whole time. They feel ashamed. They feel guilty. I'm not worthy. I cannot be in the presence of a, of a pastor. Whatever it may be, you've heard those talks. No? Especially the moment I feel it the whole time. So when people ask me, what do I do for a living? I tell them eternal life insurance, baby. Because if I say pastor, it's like suddenly, it's like a new person sitting in front of me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So... People are broken by religion, not confident. The other side is puffed up. Oh, look at how good I'm following all the rules. I'm amazing. And they look down at people. The one thing that religion does not produce is humble, loving people. Doesn't produce that. Jesus alone produces that. It's so when you come to him and that's the invitation. That's the thing that we're exploring. And today I want to dive in by exploring this, by telling you guys a story. I want you to come with me on a journey. I want to invite you to meet a new guy. His name is Mephibosheth. Okay, everybody quickly say Mephibosheth. I know you guys are doing so well there. I'm giving you guys an opportunity to practice because I know today when you go back, you're telling, guys, you'll never guess what I learned at church today. I heard about this guy. Okay, so you can just say, aka, Mephi, baby. It's Mr. Mephi. Okay, Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Maybe you've never heard about him, Mephibosheth, but you've probably heard about his dad, Jonathan. And if you haven't heard about Jonathan, his dad was King Saul the first king of Israel. And they lived quite some time back. True story. And um, the reality was in the time when Mephibosheth was born and lived, there was something interesting happening within the kingdom of Israel. Because there was another king on the rise. There was this prophet. His name was Samuel. And he anointed a new guy, maybe you've heard of him, King David, to become the future king of God's people in Israel. And... Um, Mephibosheth's story actually starts out on a little bit of a bad note because the moment you hear the story and you see the context, Mephibosheth would quickly realize he was born on the wrong side of royalty. It's the wrong family. And the reason why he's born in the wrong family had to do with this reality. Whenever one monarch would take over from another monarch in those days, one royal family takes over from another family, it was common tradition to kill every single person that's related to that person, close family, and even the slaves in the house that was loyal to the old king. And that would secure your kingdom and your rule that there would be no um, um, rivals and things standing up within the kingdom. So therefore, that was a done deal. It was like common practice. Everybody knew that's what happens when you take over from another family. And unfortunately, our good friend who had a very rough name shame poor man on top of that now he's born in the wrong family 
and he, the fear starts creeping in. He's busy living in fear because he's dreading the day that his dad, his grandpa might die. And then David becomes king because that's the day when his life ends. That's it. Story continues and we read then in 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4 of that moment when he did hear that news. When Jonathan, his father, and King Saul, his granddad, passed away in an epic battle. And in that day, the news reached him. The Bible tells us that his nurse picked him up and she started running with him to keep him safe. Take take him to a safe space, a hiding place. Because David is going to send his mighty men and it's over for Mephibosheth. It's a done deal. So they run to Lodabar and on their way there, it says that his nurse fell She tripped and he fell and he broke his back. And now the poor man with his unpronounceable name breaks his back and he's lame for the rest of his life. And when I'm saying lame here, I don't mean he's like lame. I mean like he's lame, like he can't walk anymore, okay? But it's really not the best situation for this young boy. And you'll understand why this part of the story is so important to take note of because as life would have it, in Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel 5, we see the story of David coming in as king, continuing, and David becomes the king. And, and obviously his tribe, the tribe of Judah that he comes from, immediately embraces his rule and his reign. And like, we're with King David. He is the future king. He's anointed king. But the rest of Israel are like, ooh, I'm not yet sure about this thing. And they check it out, check it out. No, lots of stories happen. And then finally David decides on a strategic move to take a city that will unite Israel and Judah. And God's people are united under one rule, one king, King David at that stage. And that city's name is Jerusalem. It was positioned beautifully, strategically to bring those two worlds together. So David makes a plan. He takes his army, takes his men. He's a mighty warrior. He's a general. I mean, the people sang songs about David after his victories with Goliath. It's like Saul kills thousands, but David kills 10,000. So, I mean, there's songs written about this guy is a hero. And now he walks to Jerusalem to take it in. And the Jebusites clearly don't know David. So they look at this little baby king trying to be like big guy. And they like, okay, you know, but who's this David? David's never going to take him to the city. And they make this statement about David. And they say, you know what? Who's King David? We'll post our blind and our lame on the walls of our city. And they will defend King David from here. He will not be able to touch us. They're overconfident with their own power. David hears this, obviously offended by this insult, the anointed king of God. This is the land that God has given us. How do you dare even say something like this in this space? And the people could see it, his soldiers sword around him. But God was with David in that moment, gave him great strategy, and he cut off the water supply in that space. And they took Jerusalem. And today we still call it Jerusalem, the city of David. And it's David's city. And um, what's so amazing about this story is that like, it seems like all the epic battles of David, the guys start writing songs or they start writing some other metaphor. And the thing that went among the people after David had this big battle, the guys remembered one thing and it was this, no lame or blind in the palace of David. 
because of this insult that was made over God's anointed king. So the, the Israelites started speaking about this. Now you can imagine, here is Mephibosheth sitting in Lodabar. I mean, he's already born on the wrong side of the royal family. David definitely wants to kill him. It's a done deal. And then he hears the story about this epic battle. And he hears how angry David was. So angry that people even started, created a saying around no blind or lame because they would remind them of this insult in the palace of David. And our friend had a little bit of a condition sitting there and he was lame. Now I want you to for a moment just with me dive into his world. When we think about someone that's lame currently in the con walk, what's the picture you see? You see someone sitting in some other wheelchair, rolling around and having a special car, maybe driving around and so on and so forth. A person in those days didn't have this at all. This person, his whole life's existence would either be someone carrying him around because he can't go anywhere or he would drag himself around in the dust, in the dirt, on the ground, living like a beggar. And here you have a supposedly prince of Israel living like a beggar, hiding in fear, ashamed of who he is and what has happened to him. And this is where our story starts getting interesting. In 2 Samuel chapter 9 we read the following, verse 1. David asked this one day, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, just quickly, two things. Firstly, if you're reading this and you really understand the context as I've just explained, you can imagine how the gods, the servants, in David's household would be listening to this and thinking to themselves, yeah, right, whatever, you want to show kindness. I know you just, you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you want to sort somebody out, so you just want to get a legal reason, you're going to, you're going to get that okie now. That's probably what they were thinking. The Bible tells us, however, that something else was happening. and God was doing something through David that would become a picture for you and for me to see what he will ultimately come and do through his son, Jesus Christ. And the part that we may be missing here is this reality. You see, Jonathan, the father of Mephibosheth, went into a covenant with David, his best friend, long back when David was still persecuted by King Saul himself. He was filled with jealousy about David's appointment as ruler and king. And Jonathan, living in a house where he really doesn't fit in, he should be with his dad in this. He, I mean, David's going to take his future throne. Jonathan doesn't fit in there. It's not like he's, he's there, but he doesn't fit in that mindset. And he comes in and he sees something greater. And he enters into a covenant. And he acknowledges the anointing of the king of God. And he says, in this moment, I submit to that move. And I pray and I ask in covenant in this relationship, that you would be faithful and bless my family, favorable towards the house of Jonathan, always. And David commits and he says, yes. And on that day, God reminded David 
of that covenant. So David is on the lookout to fulfill that covenant. And so one of the slaves called Ziba, a servant in Saul's household, heard about and knew about it, and he was summoned to King David. He tells King David, there is someone. He stays in Lodabar. I'm not going to read all the verses. He stays in Lodabar, and his name is Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. And then, verse 5, King David, hearing this, said immediately, bring this boy, Lodabar, from Lodabar, from this household of Makur, son of Amil, bring him to me. Now, David's God, he's a royal God, he's mighty men. I mean, those guys were next level. They would like sort people out like this. You can go and read that list if you're like a real guy's guy. Go and check that out. It's quite cool. But he sends these guys. They're going to go and pick up this little boy. They make their way with all their horses and chariots and whatever they have with them. The weapons, and they make their way to Lodabar. And when they get to Lodabar, you can see the people seeing the, the army come from afar. I can imagine the news spreading to our friend Mephibosheth quite quickly. Mephibosheth, there's trouble. The king's God is on his way. Might be today. And then they come into the city, go down that street, and then when they turn right at Mephi's place, everybody knew. It's over. The guard kicked open the door. You can imagine this boy sitting there. I'm just wanting you guys to see as this guy is found there in the dirt, in the grime, hiding for his life, ashamed, knowing that there's someone out there that wants to kill him. Absolutely convinced of it. That hates him. That despises him, even being in his presence because he's not fit. He's lame. It's not born right. It's wrong. God picks him up, puts him into this chariot, and they're making their way to the palace. Can you imagine Mephibosheth in his mind seeing his whole life flashing in front of him? And then he arrives, Jerusalem, the palace, King David, and to his greatest shock, David is not standing outside of the palace waiting for him. Remember, it's the place where no lame or blind goes. They pick him up. They start walking down the hallways, making their way to the throne room of King David. You can hear the servants speaking to one another, shocked and amazed. Like, guys, David must be super angry. I mean, this we've never seen this happen. He... He must really have it for this guy. He wants to kill him himself. That's probably the thing. And as he's making his way to the king, he hears these whispers going down. Thinking to myself so many times, I'm hearing people wanting to make their way and God using a very unique way of bringing them to him. And then down the aisles, maybe sometimes even well-meaning Christians start speaking and having some very interesting conversations. Oh, God must saw this boy get out. Yo, it's angry. That's okay. Yo, have you seen? Man, what he's doing. Oh, my word. Have you seen where he's hanging out? Oh, my. He's going to sort this out himself, you know? And then finally, they enter the throne room. And then verse 6. 
When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. And then this boy replied, at your service. So he's in a beggar state. It's like, I'm here to serve. I'm begging. And then the greatest paradox for those days and in those worlds and in those minds, greatest surprise happened. And that's many times the love of God. It meets us and it surprises us. We never know what to expect until we stand before that king. And what we thought the worst would be turned out to be, I couldn't even imagine. Listen to this. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather's soul and you will always eat at my table. Can you imagine what would happen in that boy's heart at that moment? It's like everything just like, it's just dropped. Never expected that one. Can I read it for you on the cosmic level today? Maybe you need to hear what this thing is pointing us to. I want you to hear the father, not the king of Israel, but the king of the universe saying this. Do not be afraid, my child. For I will surely show you kindness. For the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, I will restore to you all that I have created you for, the land that I've given you, things that belong to you, and you will always sit and eat at my table. That is the miracle of God's love and his grace. That's the picture that God is pointing us to. That's the moment when you see love for the first time. The one that doesn't just say he has it, but he says he is it. And you realize you've been believing a lie for so long. And this lie has gotten you caught up in dust and dirt and hiding away for your life. It's filled you with fear. And you're not enjoying the inheritance and the intimacy that God has given you. I want you to see how strong this thing is. Because in the next verse, we see Mephibosheth responding to this. And sometimes we can believe. Sometimes we're in that same space. He says the following. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? So this is how he responds to the love. It's like, I'm a dead dog. I'm a servant. Does this sound like the boy still caught up in Lodabar, living there in, in Mephi's place? <laughs> Trying to make a living? Absolutely. I wonder how many of us are sitting here today. You've already heard about the surprising love of God, but still, whenever you catch yourself in a space where you absolutely convinced that God must hate me because of what I've done, you're still living like that dead dog. Still living like that dead dog. Still a beggar. Not yet a son. Look at how... David responds, and I believe God responds like this as well. He says, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. 
You and your sons, your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. When you bow before God, feeling like a beggar, do you know what he's busy doing? He's sending his spirit to strengthen you, to open up a way for you, to guide you, to provide for you. We sang that song so beautifully this morning. Jaira, you are more than enough for me. God is busy with a work in you. His love restores you back at the table. And then he's busy restoring you in authority to no longer think like a beggar, but now to start living like a son. And I love this last verse. I want to read it and I want to end here with you guys and then talk about two other things. But our story ends here in verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my Lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's servants, beggars, slaves, sons. This morning, there's a chair open. And it's open for anyone who's willing to come who believes that Jesus' love moves you from being a beggar to becoming a son. You get to eat with the Father. You get inheritance. You get to sit at his table. You're invited to come to life himself. That's the invitation. I want to end off with two last thoughts. The first one, when it comes to this come as you are idea, is that Jesus calls us to himself and not to a religion, not to a some other cult that you need to work harder in and make sure that you get to God or whatever it may be. He says it as follows, Matthew 11 verse 28, come to me, all you are weary and burdened. Weary from working hard, burdened by lies that you are not enough, you are not worthy, you are not loved. God must hate you. You are a mistake. Everything that happened with you, lies that got you captured like our good friend, Mephibosheth. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are there. If you're weary, if you're tired, if the world convinced you that you need to prove your worth to God, God says, in this way, I loved you. And while you were still sinners, while you had nothing to give me, I gave everything to get you back with me. Jesus says to you, come to me, not come to Bible reading, not come to church, not come to prayer disciplines, come to me. And I will give you rest. That's the invitation. You know, in the Bible, you can go and read it. I just have it so much in my heart this morning now. In Ephesians, it says that through Jesus Christ, we get to rest. We get to be seated in heavenly places. 
That's the invitation. To come and rest. To come and sit with Him. No more working. No more fixing myself. No more trusting myself to fix myself. Because it's not going to work. It hasn't been up until now. Only sit and rest and enjoy His presence. He wants to hear what's on your heart. He wants to share what's on His with you. Do you get the picture? I so hope that the Holy Spirit rests your heart this morning. Because if you don't give in to this, if you don't trust Him here, you miss out so much. The second point that I quickly want to make is that Jesus didn't just call us to Himself. He also called us first. And here I want to make it very clear. I already quoted the scripture that says, while we were still sinners, He loved us. Can I say another thing? You need to hear it. Many times we think Christianity is a story of me being drowning in the ocean, trying to make ends meet. I'm like just like paddling Get my head above the water. (laughs) And then Jesus comes by. Thank you, Father. God's here. He's going to save me out of my trouble. And then he throws a life raft to me and I catch it. And then I start pulling myself in. Guys, that's religion. That's your work. Oh, and I haven't pulled hard enough. Oh, you know, Lorraine, Jesus was there. He did throw it out. Not just like, whatever. That's religion, guys. Can I tell you the true story? The Bible does not say that we are lost or we are drowning or we are struggling in our trespasses and our sins. It says that we are dead. You're dead. There's no grabbing onto anything here. There's no power that you bring to the table. It's only him and his love. So do you know the story goes like this? You're down on the bottom of the ocean. Dead. (laughs) You have nothing to give. And then that one day, Jesus dives in and he comes and gets you right there in death itself. Picks you up, brings you. And then he does the same thing that he did with his best friend, Lazarus. He stands outside of the tomb of your grave and he says, Lazarus, come out. And do you know who says that? It's not a prophet, not a teacher, not a nice Israel ruler. No, before he says that, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you have experienced life when Jesus speaks, I want to tell you, it's because the resurrection is not a moment in time. It's not an event. It is a person. His name is Jesus. And when he rocks up, everything gets resurrected. Everything that you thought is down, your old relationships that you are hopelessly giving up on, all of your opportunities that's like over, I will never get hope for this. God resurrects that. He brings new life into all of those spaces. Even your old broken heart, he makes new. He called you first and he loves you. Let's close our eyes. While you're sitting here with your eyes closed, I know there are people here this morning 
that might experience for the very first time that God's love is knocking on their hearts. Not guilt, not shame, but there's this invitation to come and sit at my table and feast from what I have already prepared for you. Come to me and I will give you rest. If that is you, just open up your hands as a moment of saying, I want to receive because I want to pray for you. I want you to respond to that invitation. There is anybody like this. Mm. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you wake us up. You make us new. You don't just help us out, but you create and put in us a new heart. And that where the chair is open for people to come and sit and to find rest in heavenly places in your presence, I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, that he will renew our minds. We are no longer beggars. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And we get to sit in the fellowship of the one that birthed the world into existence. Thank you for your love that overwhelms us. Thank you that it's enough. And in Jesus' name, may no fear have any hold over anyone that's in this room, but that there will only be peace here. No longer will we speak of fear, but we will only enjoy peace. We will be strong and courageous for our loving Father clawed his way down from heaven to earth to bring us in, to invite us to a great feast. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all say, Amen. What a message. If you feel that someone would benefit from this, share it with them. We are all about family on mission.